I can do things that wear it without asking anybody, even my Coney wife. Coney Island, world's biggest barrel of fun. And anywhere else your imagination takes you. Okay, we've done that now, Mark. You get the whole show now, you hurry, hurry, hurry. Anything's possible at Disneyland. Welcome aboard the Themed Attraction Podcast, where we take you for a ride through the wonderful world of theme park design, that is. You've just set sail on a courageous journey of discovery and discussion with theme park industry masters of the craft. I'm your skipper, Freddie Martin, and chugging the river with me, as always, is theme park designer, master planner, and chief creative officer for Storyland Studios, Mel McGowan. Where's the water leading us today, Mel? Well, we've got a special episode for all you sailors today. Uh, we've got a bit of a capacity problem at first on your little boat. Uh, we've got three legendary guests, friends, and collaborators all waiting to come on board today, and we need to make some room. First, we've got filmmaker and producer Bob Rogers of BRC Imagination Arts. Then our good friend Mike West, formerly of Universal Creative, climbs on board. And finally, uh, one of the original founders of Sally Dark Rides, uh, John Wood, is going to round out our crew today. That's great. Each one of these guys is a creative legend in his own right, collectively bringing 100 plus years of theme park design experience to bear on our leaky little jungle boat here to talk with us about one of the most important metrics in attraction development, ride capacity. All righty, folks. Keep your hands, arms, feet, and legs inside the boat, because this episode is about to leave the dock. Hit it, Sam. Mel, it was IAPA 2021 just a short time ago, and we met a lot of folks who are uh, just getting their starts in the industry. I, I know I ran into a whole crew of people over at uh, the Icon Park event and really kind of a fun place to meet the the youngsters who are getting into this thing. I call them young, youngsters. They were all there for their master's degree completion, and uh, but uh, they're young compared to me. Ugh. Yeah, at one point anyway. I looked over, you look like a mother duckling with a bunch of little, you know, or a mother duck with a bunch of ducklings behind <laughs> yeah, you. There you go. Professor Freddie. Yeah, it was great. I was Gandalf. It was great. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, uh, you know, everybody wants to get started in this industry that nowadays, for, for the first time, I think in history, there's new degree programs popping up in many of the colleges across the country uh, d- that are creating development paths to help people get into the themed entertainment industry. And, uh, uh, you know, I'm a I'm a young guy, but this wasn't available when we were getting into uh, the industry, was it? Well, no kidding. I, I you know, I, I know myself, Josh Dedman, a couple of our guys, we had to kind of craft our own degree, basically. Uh, and, uh, and I've, and, and since it's been fun to kind of get to be part of con- contributing to, uh, the creation of, uh, some of these multidisciplinary programs, but I think that, uh, they're, you know, the, the institutions are almost responding to the, the demand of, uh, some of their students just wanting kind of that multidisciplinary applied learning and, and even kind of bridging into the world of gaming design with, uh, you know, physical entertainment, experiential design and film and media. It's, it's really been a joy to see kind of the, the streams uh, crossing uh, in this regard. I think in a lot of our conversations with people in the industry, uh, one of the things that often comes back uh, 
to comes to bear on how how do you become successful in this industry one of the things that they often will talk about is being part of operations starting out in some sort of capacity at a theme park uh, whether it's working the rides or the restaurants or the hotels or wherever wherever they can plug themselves in they start to get some sort of a native knowledge there and i know that's true of me i know it's true of you there was there's this opportunity to have a firsthand understanding of how things work. So um, what is it that we gain by working and being part of a, a theme park uh, situation that really comes to bear every day for us when we're designing these things, these places? You know, I don't know how to describe it, but there is just a, a, a clear difference between someone that is, basically trying to apply, you know, uh, something like programming, you know, the requirements for an attraction for uh, a resort, for a facility, when they've just been handed some numbers or a spreadsheet or, you know, a wish list, and they're just designing that versus someone that, again, has had the experience of spending a summer, you know, working in uh, attractions or custodial or whatever. I mean, I, I remember for me, one of my formative experiences before I ever got to design uh, a hotel was to to do cross training in almost every job uh, in Disney resorts, uh, including working alongside, you know, in my humble opinion, some of the hardest working people on the planet, which would be some of the housekeeping staff, you know, and understanding what it takes to to basically clean a room every thirty minutes and how efficient that operation needs to be and how that actually affects, you know, based on how long your shift is, how many rooms per shift. You don't want to be going up and down elevators or up and down stairs to get to supply. So that actually affects the footprint and the layout of how many rooms per floor. Wow. Uh, And and there's things like that, that again, you could read that in a textbook or get that from a owner's requirement. But um, when you've, when you've been sweating to try to make that (laughs) daily quota or, you know, and you scrubbing the toilets and doing what you need to, you just, it's, it's like, it seems, uh, it's it's like it's the old uh, Karate Kid Kung Fu Shaolin, you know, wipe on, wipe off kind of muscle yeah, you've memory. You've got to that, learn that. Stuff. Yeah, you can't just read, draw, and apply. I mean, you've got to. Yeah, it's there's definitely um, some invaluable knowledge there. There's there's pros and cons, but yeah, it's, it's certainly yeah, it's tough to break out of that. You know, um, operational. My mind goes back to my parade route days and making sure that all the lines were set so that the parade could go through. We could stop people at the crossovers or even setting up the queue for one of the rides and making sure that we had capacity inside on the internal queue to be able to take all the people who wanted to get into that ride. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Today's guests are all masters of the craft in their own right. We're featuring three quick interviews with three veterans who know a whole lot about rolling coaster math. Our buddy Nate Naverson of ThemedAttraction.com took a break from the IAPA show floor to ask Bob Rogers, Mike West, and John Wood of Sally Dark Rides to discuss the role of ride capacity in park and attraction design, storytelling, and the ever-fickle factor of guest satisfaction. Well, take it away, Nate. So we're having a conversation with Bob Rogers, chairman of BRC Imagination Arts, and I was just telling him, I started out at Jungle Cruise and Pirates of the Caribbean, worked at Haunted Mansion and in theme park. You started out at Jungle Cruise. That's like the top of the top 
how did you land that as your normally you have oh. to go work uh, it's a small world and other things that are less desirable in order to work your way yeah that's, so so here's that's the prize of all time well okay so here's the story is that I got rejected by the Disneyland college program I flew from University of Colorado to Washington State to interview with my buddy and I got the rejection letter three weeks later they said there's either a fat envelope a fat packet or a thin envelope and Christmas I called and I said do I have the the envelope or the packet they said oh you have the envelope but I still hoped that maybe I would have have the packet so when I got to back to college after Christmas break I, I, I got the thin the rejection letter and I said wait a minute let me think about this a bunch of kids just got rejection letter just like me but someone's gonna back out because some someone's mom is gonna tell them no you can't go they, they're going to get a better job. So I started well, a, letter, get a better offer, yeah. A better offer. So I started because California, Southern California, is a far away place from someone from Idaho or Oregon or wherever you're, you're from. So I started a letter writing campaign, and every week I would write them and say, hey, I still want this job. Please hire me. I'm great. I wasn't great. I was a college kid. I knew nothing. But I said, I want to work here. And, uh, and the day after I gave up, I got a call from Bridget Lundquist, who was the, the daughter. Of Jack Lindquist. She was wow. hiring for the college program. She said, How would you like to work on the Jungle Cruise? And I said, My Absolutely God. yes. Well they must have there must have been a a self-confident bravado in those letters that they said, Oh, I know where this works. <laughs> well, maybe. I don't know. You've I, gotta be you've gotta be boy, that's a that's a prize. What a great place to start. That's a great story. It's sort of like, um, it's, a, it's a perfect feedback loop from developing your sense of humor. Because if you tell the same joke 20 times a day, it's more at Disneyland because you have an eight minute ride versus a 15 or 12 minute ride. But if they don't laugh the first time and the second time you say it slightly different, then they, laugh. then they laugh. You're like, okay, do it the second way. Sure. And so you learn your comedic, comedic timing that way. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Though that's the whole thing with uh, stand-up comedians say that they're working out, just like they were going to the gym or something, yeah. when they're doing the same routine over and over and over again, and just the slightest difference in intonation or, or which word comes last, right? and that kind of thing, it can make all the difference in the world. So, yeah. And, and that's what, that's why comedians at, in the middle or end of their career are funny saying almost anything. Almost anything. And uh, whereas the rest of us can tell a really funny joke and have it fail. Right. And and what was really interesting was that sometimes you would say the same joke and it was kind of it would be on autopilot and then it would get unfunny for a while. And you had to say, well, wait, it worked the last four times. Yeah. These two times it hasn't. And you realize you just changed something yeah. ever well, so slightly. Or you would say you're on autopilot and you're really not into it. Right. Your, your, your brain is doing a grocery list right. or something. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you would just try things because yeah. the audience would change. They didn't matter. So you would, and we're interviewing me about Jungle Cruise now, but yeah, they would change every 10 minutes. So at a certain point, the audience didn't matter. And so you're just trying things out. And eventually you get kind of your timing down and it, and, and it way, works. That's, a, that's an evergreen concept on every single level in our business. Really? That whether you're, if you're designing an attraction for somebody, and you've designed hundreds of attractions. Similarly, if you aren't totally focused, totally on, totally giving it your best, really bringing your absolute best effort to everything you touch, 
then you go on autopilot. And we've all seen the designers who've done that. They've done one or two really great projects, and now they're just riding that reputation and not really putting putting in the work or putting in the focus and concentration. Yeah. And so that concept that you learned right there is something that applies to everything you're going to be doing in the rest of the, for the rest of your career. Yeah. If you want a great career and if you really care about your audience and you care about your uh, your performance. Yeah. So to finish up the story, I got the jo- the job on Jungle Cruise and Pirates of the Caribbean and then I was taking classes and then during school I learned how to do CAD and different things. And so I got a job working at Richard Crane Productions, if you remember him, and then iTech, and then that translated into Universal Art and Design and Universal Creative, places like that. So it's been a a pretty good pretty good journey out here in Orlando. Yep, yep. But what I've noticed is that now they have all these MFA and themed entertainment design that they didn't have when Mm -hmm. I had to so and you and I both had to wiggle and find our own way. The college courses are getting much better than they were. Right. If you go back when they started, like 15 years ago, I think the way that they would get into the course catalog was the head of the uh, university would come the to provost, a professor, yeah. come to a professor and say, "You know, Larry, there just aren't that many people signing up for comparative literature of the Renaissance era, but we've got some interest for theme parks. Why don't you teach a course in theme park design instead?" And Larry says, I don't know anything about it. And the university says, well, that's okay. Nobody does. So, uh, But the kids are all interested in it, so I'm sure you'll think of something. So that's the way it started. And the kids were still trying to figure it out for themselves. But it's getting better and better and better. Yeah. But here's the rub, is that they're learning how to do presentation art. They're doing conceptual art. They're doing drafting. They're, They're learning Maya. Mm-hmm. all the Adobe Creative Suite, all those things, but they don't know how people flow through spaces well, because they've never worked in attractions. And also, they may not know how the money works. That and too. if the money doesn't work, neither is the, the, the attraction's not going to get built. Right. So, yeah, those are, those are important things. So that's the question. What, in your experience, can you talk to about, and I just want to leave it as an open-ended question about ride capacity, We've been using that word, ride capacity. I've talked to a few folks now. And and how that plays in, there's there's a dollar dollar versus capacity relationship. Well, sure, you should talk to somebody like Management Resources or one of those about, about getting down to the efficiency rates on how to really calculate a capacity and what it's really going to do for you and also what the demand is going to be in terms of that. But if you don't understand that, you're going to design something that that isn't going to work. Last night, we were listening to a panel with Terry Koo from Universal, who was talking about how in the original Spider-Man, they had an eight-person vehicle that when they finally got the technology worked out and they realized what the dispatch interval was going to be, they kept working on the dispatch interval trying to get that shorter and shorter because they weren't getting to the capacity per hour that they promised. And so they had to do this huge engineering and design redo on the ride at the last minute to change it from eight passengers to 12 because uh, that that would get them to the capacity that they uh, that they really needed. 
I know we do also a lot of special effects theaters. Mystery Lodge being one. Mystery Lodge being one of one of, uh, one of many, or the uh, brand new thing that we just opened at Ravinia in Chicago about Leonard Bernstein, the life work of Leonard Bernstein, a wonderful show, full of emotion and heart, makes you laugh, makes you cry, and also not at all the happy little thing that people will expect from the uh, uh, from the creator of West Side, West Side Story and Candide. Rather, very serious. It's it's surprising, but anyway, it's a theater, and an architect will think that capacity is the number of seats, and a themed entertainment person knows that capacity is seats per hour. It's a function. It's a flow rate. That's what's important. I'll give you one interesting insight, and that is that the. If you're doing dealing with a shorter uh, a show, the the shorter the show, the more it should be worth. Because if you've got say uh, you want to have a capacity of a thousand people an hour, and uh, you decide that you're going to do a a 50 minute 50 50 minute show, then you've got to build a thousand seat theater. But if you instead uh, can take your show concept and have just as much impact, just as much entertainment and informational and motivational impact if you can do that in, say, 22 minutes with a 8-minute load-unload, then you only have to build a 500-seat theater. But if you can do the same thing in 12 minutes with a 3-minute load-unload, then you only have to build a 250-seat theater, right? You see how that works? Now, you're saving on the construction, on the capital investment. You save on the heating and air conditioning. You you know, you have less floor to sweep. I mean, there's all kinds of savings put down the show. Might have to cost just as much or even more in order to concentrate that firepower into fewer minutes. But uh, And you can almost always get away with that because when... When the lights go down, people lose their sense of time. You take that away from them. If they're aware of how long something is, probably you didn't have their complete attention. But if you did have their complete attention, then they're swept along. Marty Sklar once said uh, he had and, a... And for uh, those of you who don't know listening, Marty Sklar was... Had a career at Disney that was over 50 years. 25 of those years were almost all of it was at WDI. But the last 25, he was the head of he was the head of creative uh, at all of uh, Walt Disney Imagineering, design and the theme parks. He was talking with somebody about the original Space Mountain sponsor, and he sponsor wanted to know how long it was. And Marty said, "Well, it's uh, it's three minutes." And he said, the client says, wow, that's a, we're paying a lot of money for just three minutes. Marty said, well, let me, re, re, let me rephrase that. Let me correct myself. It's either three minutes or it's forever. You ride it and tell me which one it was. The guy wrote it and said, it's forever. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, your sense of time, if you're really entertaining, if you've really got them in the palm of your hand and you're leading them, emotionally through a great experience, then the audience will always lose track of time and your best value 
will always be shorter. And then they have more time in the park to do other things, to buy merchandise, churros. Right. Um, that, by the way, is one of the dirty little secrets of parks. Uh, the calculation for how you build a park depends upon people waiting in line. There are some formulas for designing a park that say that in any given time, 25% of the people in the park will be standing in line on a busy day. Now, think about that for a moment. Most guests don't thank God. But if you think about that for a moment, then you have to, the, the implication is that 25% of your day was spent waiting in line. In an eight-hour day, that's two hours Right, in so line. you spend two hours waiting in line, and, and you, you uh, uh, that, and that's just supposed to be an acceptable part of, uh, of the experience. And, and higher if you get into, uh, if you uh, manage to go on a peak day. So that's also part of the extended capacity discussion, is what are people doing at any given moment? What percentage are in shops? How much of your time do you spend in shops? What percentage are, you know, moving from what, wayfinding, moving from one place to another? Uh, what percentage are standing in line? What percentage are actually in an attraction at any given time? It's actually a very small percentage that are in the attraction at any given time, especially if you've got something like Space Mountain that might have a, uh, you know, or uh, one of those that would have a, quite a long line, but not necessarily a, a long ride. Although, if you terrify them enough with a good enough illusion of a near-death experience, <laughs> then their their memory, the, the time that they, it occupies their memory it'll seem like the ride was where they spent most of the day. That makes complete sense. Now, especially with Disney, we're seeing the opposite happen. And that's that with these apps that control your day, essentially, you're getting you out of the line. And because of that, now the parks are extremely, they feel crowded. Well, that's of course because the original formulas for how to lay out a park assume 25% of the people are in line. If they're not, where the hell are they? <laughs> because they're, the, the rest of the park wasn't built to take that traffic. And then the guest experience yeah. suffers. And sadly and unfortunately, we're not taking as many people out of line as we would like to. We would like to have nobody ever have to. God bless the people trying to do the apps, but the apps don't work as well as we would all like them to. You, you get a reservation and sometimes you go back at your reserve time and you still have to wait 10, 15, 20 minutes to get into the ride that you supposedly had a, a reservation for. That's not working quite as well. But that whole problem, maybe the maybe some of your younger listeners will solve that problem for all of us. Yeah, and you lose the exploration because now all of a sudden I have to get from here to there to get to my spot in line. And I don't have time to meander and say, what's this? Well, let's just go in. It's this nondescript colonial building. Oh, wait, it's Pirates of the Caribbean. Right? Yeah, and that whole thing of... We say that the most important character in your park is the guest. They are the hero of the story. They are on, they're doing an exploration mission. As they wander through the park, they're drawn this way or that way by the, 
by the things that they see. They come around a corner that creates a reveal that, that shows them some a, a, a little discovery, and that the aimless wandering is really kind of like a dream. You kind of don't know what's around the next corner. You're sort of drifting your way through it very gently, not thinking very much. The minute you put in these hard appointments at different corners of the park, all of a sudden you took away that experiencing the park almost on a subconscious level. You took that away, and now all of a sudden I, I've got my my, I'm back at work my, I have a deadline. my left brain organizing every step. Yeah, I've got a, I'm constantly watching my watch. I'm, it, you turned to a to a small extent. You turned what should have been fun into work. And it's almost the opposite. In, in Vegas, you can't find a clock. Now, all of a sudden, your your entire you know, that's a great theme park experience is based on the clock again. Unfortunately, right. That's that's absolutely true. That's a good that's a good analogy about Las Vegas. And similarly, on Las Vegas, you put the big show at the back of the of the the casino. So you've got to walk through the casino. And the wayfinding is deliberately terrible. So that you might, on your way to the show, come around a corner and you go, Oh, there's a wheel. You know, we were gonna put we were gonna put ten bucks on Larry's favorite number for him and give it a remember that, you know, and then you're gonna get lost and then coming back out the same way. Finding your way out back to the street, they really kinda want you to get lost. They want that to be a sort of a uh, uh, a, a, a dreamlike sort of drifting walk of discovery, getting back out. That's all very, very intentional. That's a part of the park that we lose when we get too caught up with appointments. Yeah, and that's a shame because I think that's not you know, the experience of economy. Where you're, you experienced it as a child, and then you're taking your kid to do what what you did when you were little, and you're you're seeing the park again through their eyes. But now you're dependent on a clock. Yes, exactly right. The parks that have a, a better ratio of uh, in-park count to ride capacity, that have a better balance, they're, they're more pleasant. For example, if I'm there on a, on a light day, which I would try to be for anything in park, I, I go to Knott's Berry Farm and I come off the log ride with my kids and, I, and they say, can we go again, can we go again? And I said, no, 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 wait a minute. We're at Knott's Berry Farm, not Disneyland. The ride, the wait is going to be five or ten minutes. Yeah, we can go again. It's just a lot more, in some ways, it's a lot more fun. Disney's fault is that they've done a fabulous, fabulous park. And so that's why it's a really great experience, but, you know, but then that draws a lot of people. The other thing that a lot of younger people don't understand about capacity is that there's a capacity strategy across the whole park. If you, you start adding up the uh, seats per hour of every single attraction in the park and you add them up for every attraction, you get come up with a total number of what you're able to serve. And now you look at what you are designing the park for in terms of a, of a peak in-park count or something, and you can calculate how many attractions per hour the guests are capable of seeing. And a, a good uh, a ride park like a Six Flags kind of, or a, you know, a King's Dominion, one of those, might, have, might want uh, two rides per hour. That would be great. 
Uh, Disney used to be about 1.3. As they get more elaborate, the design target is going down under one. And if you're providing things like Rise of the Resistance, one per day would be, you know, <laughs> would be just absolutely fabulous and worth the price of admission. That is a great, great, great attraction. So no preconceived notions about what that, no, that number should be. The better and more impactful the attractions, the fewer you can offer and, uh, and the shorter you should make them. But the, that capacity thing isn't just for a single ride. It extends to the entire park. And, and restaurants, a, you, And too. restaurants, and makes a huge difference. Yeah, when the Warner Brothers Park at Bottrop in Germany first opened up, there was a, a cultural miscalculation that this should be in all the textbooks. The uh, designers assumed that the Germans would behave like Americans and fast food all day. And they put the right amount of seats in their restaurants for that. And quite differently, it's a different culture, it's a different set of expectations. The, the Germans would, uh, all of them wanted to sit down for lunch at lunchtime, period. Not nosh gradually throughout the day. They also would plunk down, and this happened at Disneyland Paris as well, initially. The Europeans plunked down on the table, they stuck grandma at that table, they left all of their backpacks at that table, and used that table as, as a base for uh, their adventures for the day. And that wasn't in anybody's calculations for how often they were going to turn, turn over those tables. So that kind of goofed that up, and of course both parks responded by, you know, adding adding food service and serving areas, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And I feel like with, with, at least with the Disney parks, what they've done is they've raised the prices as high as they can go to get that crowd down, but... Yes and no, and that that's, a, that's another... You ought to come back and do another article about that issue. Are we with the... They have to raise the prices because otherwise the parks are just being choked to death in their own success. So you raise the prices in order to help deregulate attendance, but now you're starting to... Theme parks used to be for everybody. Everybody could afford to go to a theme park. It was one of the few things in our culture that united all of us. And gradually it's becoming an elitist thing. Only the upper middle class and very wealthy can afford to go to a theme park if it's $170 a person, right? you know, you take Plus. Uh, Joe Lunchbox, who brings his family, and it's he, he, he's got a family of five, and he spends five tickets of 170 bucks each, and and then he, when the kids want a Coca-Cola, he says, no, I'm sorry, hit the drinking fountain. We've got to do some serious thinking about it. And I don't blame Disney at all, not at all, because like I said, they're being choked off in their own success. They've got to do something. Right. Europa Park is doing something interesting. They are charging an extra 10 euros per person on uh, Saturday and actually informing their public, s suggesting they come on a Friday, same parade on Friday, 
save everything on Friday. Why don't you come on Friday, save the 10 euros per person? And their uh, their people are responding. So people are actually that, choosing a different day. They're choosing, day. But, but... You're incentivizing But Europa it. Park is taking a very, I think, a very uh, uh, ethical approach to that by actually suggesting that people save the money. You know? And, and, and that's... That's pretty cool. Anyway, that's that's a good business idea because people then you know they, they appreciate the honesty. Hey, uh, hey come here and you'll, you'll have a better better day on this day, and you'll save ten dollars. Yeah, absolutely. And they're yeah, getting they're achieving their objective, and they're they're being uh, open, transparent, and honest with their audience. I just recently walked around the uh, uh, trade floor here at IAP, and I talked to a whole bunch of different people in the economic feasibility uh, business that. Uh, understand the mathematics of our business and I asked them for uh, for what you do is there a book that people can read and they all recommended the same book and that was Walt's Revolution by the numbers written by Buzz Price Harrison Buzz Price it's funny they all recommended the same book he was so, the guy who wrote the book on well, he was the guy who created the business. He was the bright young man who, in about 1953, according to legend, walked into Walt Disney's office and handed Walt Disney a check saying, Mr. Disney, sir, I'm giving you a refund on your advance. The, this is the unspent portion of the fee that you paid us because we can't prove that this amusement park thing of yours is going to work. I've talked with... Pacific Ocean Park, I've talked with the people at the carousel at Griffith Park, I've talked with the San Diego Zoo, and Walter Knott won't talk to me because he thinks you're going to drive him out of business. I can't do this. And supposedly, according to legend, Walt got up, put his arm around Buzz, escorted him to the door, handed him back his check, and said, now Mr. Price, you look like a bright young man, I'm going to pay someone a lot of lovely money to give me a lot of columns of little columns of little black numbers to keep my board of directors off my back while I do this. Who's that going to be, Mr. Price? <laughs> and he said, well, I guess I could take a second look at the data. And stumped, Buzz went out and invented the economic feasibility craft for our business. All, almost all of the metrics that are used by the professionals today came from this guy and he wrote a book and a lot of those metrics by the way can be found in chapter 14 for those those of you students <laughs> I've got it bookmarked oh yeah but yeah and it's wonderful well the other thing there is listening to some of his stories because one of the things Buzz had especially during the period that I worked with him he had just the most amazing intuition about what was going to work he almost didn't need to look up the numbers. A lot of the numbers were in his head, but he had wonderful intuition, and that comes from the stories and the personalities. And many of those same personalities are with us. They have different names and different faces now. But funny how history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. A lot of, especially young people, want to start designing attractions right away without understanding the arithmetic or the mathematics that holds them together and makes them buildable and sustainable. Somebody once said 
about this business. This is an easy business to get into and a very hard business to stay in. If you just learn how to uh, create great attractions and don't understand the arithmetic that not only makes them work but makes them financeable and everything else, then you're, 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 you're going to be working for someone who does. Yeah. And I think there's that sort of mentality where I'm going to learn how to be a great artist and then I can just forget all of that math stuff. And all of it kind of comes into play. Yeah, because you, you, you've, got to you've got to understand your business. It is, my first job in this business was over 50 years ago. I was a magician in the magic shop at Disneyland in California. And my job was to demonstrate the trick. That was the show part. And then while the visitor was still amazed, I would drag them over to the cash register and sell them the trick, the business part show business <laughs> and and without it there wouldn't be a magic shop and I wouldn't have had a job as a as a, a magician to start my uh, career in uh, this industry and, and you spelled it out it, at the end of the day it is show business yeah and and there's nothing wrong with that there's nothing wrong with that because one of the things I learned at that magic shop that was that stuck with me all these years is when I first got there I thought that they were coming there to find out how magical I was and what they were really doing was they were coming there to, hoping to be able to find some magic in themselves uh, we were not the we were the magic shop not the magic temple and my job was to make them magical so by the end of the summer, instead of showing off with how much I knew and how I could fool them, instead, my job was to show them how to, how to fool others and be magical in front of others, how to, how to help them find that magic within themselves. And by extension, that's what all of us in this industry are trying to do, is to try to take our visitors and help them find some magic in themselves, have a great day, and walk away feeling wonderful about themselves, their family, the people they love, that they came with, all of that. That's our job. That's a great life lesson. I think that's a perfect place to end. Thank you so much. Bob Rogers, everyone, from the RC Imagination Arts, has been talking to us about ride capacity and uh, traction capacity and creating great guest experiences. So Mike West. Universal Creative, former Imagineer. Retired. Retired, sort of. <laughs> We're talking about ride capacity or show capacity. And I just kind of wanted to get your thoughts on it because we're getting a variety of different views from different, an architect has a different view than a show guy. Yeah. So. Well, to me, it's it's all about um, show timing. You know, I mean, the, the more capacity you need, the more either the vehicles you're going to have, or your your, your timing is going to be longer. So it really it tends to drive how much story you can tell, right? Yeah. I mean, if you have a half hour show with a thousand people in the theater, you have that much time to spend. But it takes time to load them. If you want to increase the capacity, have a longer show, you got to have a bigger audience, which right. means a bigger expense to create a bigger facility, like Indiana. 
Indiana Jones, you know, we have 20 some hundred people, to over 2,000 people, so we could have a nice long show. Monster Sound Show, when we built it, we had one half of that or less than about a quarter of it, so we had to shorten the show. So, from a storytelling standpoint, I always look at it and say, how much time do I have to tell the story, and can I? meet the capacity or exceed it or do I have to go back to the operator and go look to do the story we need more time and you might have a few less people but it's going to be a better show when you're talking about queue line capacity it comes down to a minute detail of how much space you need to allow per guest going through a queue space so the more you require of course the longer your queue is going to be so you usually want to have an uncovered section of queue a covered section and then a condition section and the length of that queue will depend on going back to what we talked about the timing of the ride on how long that ride is going to be because you have to be able to handle that many guests so that you don't get them backed up out into the park and that drives how much show you need to build into your queue so that it's just not a, not a switchback to nowhere right it's important yeah yeah it makes all the difference and yeah. also you need to make sure that if you're going to switch back you have enough room for a wheelchair guest to right. make that turn 60 inches everyone yeah yeah, yeah thank you yeah so and, and and also something as simple as doing a 180 when you're loading into show versus a 90 makes a huge difference because people stop people there. stop and yeah. when you have to stop and do a 180 and go the other way it takes longer to load a show and being selfish from a show standpoint the longer it takes to load a show the less time you have to do the show or if you don't do it right they'll start the show before the show is fully loaded uh, which from a design standpoint just drives it crazy but again work with the operator so you know that ahead of time right so you don't and try to guess. minimize some of those operational issues exactly yeah exactly yeah, yeah. that's so, always a hard argument to win so when it came to a dark ride let's say or well i mean you wrote the jungle cruise script at least one version I mean, yeah. how, did that, how did that all come into play well, that one we already had a preset time, so right. we knew we had to write to the show. You know that when you have one, especially a class like like that, you know you have to keep that capacity because it's such a high high. Uh, a popular attraction. Yeah. You know, when you're doing something new, that's the challenge is trying to work. But again, that goes back to something I always say about working with the operator, right? You've got to work with the operator from the outset because if you come through with a great show and everybody's excited about it, but your capacity went from a 2,000 to a 1,000 people an hour, you got a problem because the operator's not going to accept that. So work with the partners in the park and make sure you know you're meeting what you need to meet or at least at the beginning, work with them to see if you can change that at all. But to me, capacity is always about show and the time you have to tell the story. Yeah, that's that's really good advice. We talked about, I don't know if you were in that, that charrette the other day with... Uh, with Bob Rogers, and they were talking about Spider Man. How they oh, had, with, with how, how they had eighteen se- with Phil and Tony. Yeah, yeah, uh, they had they had eighteen seconds for each scene. And yeah. So each each vehicle would come through the scene, but then if one of them got slowed up, the timing changes every time a vehicle comes through because some guy has to load his wheelchair. That's right. Well, and it also depends. You know, you have to make sure that vehicle clears that zone right before you can reset and tell that scene again to the next car coming down the road, which plays into your audio, your lighting, everything, it can, and, and the track layout, because you don't want to be looking back at that scene when the next car's coming in, because you've already been told that story point. So yeah, on a ride-through like that, it becomes a, a critical from a timing standpoint. But again, if you go back to the loading of a wheelchair at the, at the load platform, work with the operator at the beginning. You need to understand that if that's going to be slowed down, what's going to happen to the car, you know, five scenes into the show 
besides coming to a stop, in which some voice like mine comes on and tells you, I'm sorry, the, the ride is now down. You know? um, so it, it, it always goes back to partnership with your, with your, your guys in the park to make it work. You have to do that. Yeah. Because they never lose the argument. <laughs> Very true. All right. What do you tell someone who says, I don't draw, but I still want to be part of this industry? There's so many disciplines, Nathan, in this industry that are part of an overall project timeline that I don't care what you're interested in. If it's engineering, if it's finance, if it's scheduling, if it's project management, there's a place for you in the course of a project. You don't have to be a writer or an artist, per se, to be creative. You know, if, if I have a project and you're a finance person and you can figure out how to finance and pay for my crazy idea, you're far more creative than I am because without you, my project's not going to move forward. But it's so important for people to understand that you don't have to be the typical creative person uh, like an artist or, or with the Hawaiian shirt on, right, right, and, yeah. the, and the patches on your tweed coat. And, um, I, although I think mine have been given away now, um, <laughs> but you can bring your talent to the table in the course of a project from the time of blue sky to the time you open, and you can be part of the process. And that's what's so great about the industry. 140 different disciplines, that's give right. or take. Yes. And so find your... Find your niche. Find what you love to do more than anything. I mean, it's an old cliche, but it's a cliche because it works. So just follow what you really want to do and learn to apply it in a different way. I mean, there's, there's engineers, of which I am far from, because you never want me designing a bridge, but I will build a bridge between partnerships with the people in the park, so it's a different way to engineer that. But there's so many young engineers I've talked to that they learn about our industry, and they go, so I could do that? I said, sure you can, because we need engineers to build these things and design them and make sure they can run. So, so it's great. I love it. Yeah, fantastic. Mike West, thanks very much. You're welcome. How do you tell a story when people listen with more than their ears? Stories change lives. They make us remember, but only when they're felt and not just heard. Storyland Studios builds the impossible. We turn big ideas into reality. We tell stories in three dimensions to stir the senses so you can walk into places you've only seen in your dreams, in real life and real time. Storyland's artists, architects, and artisans take stories out of the imagination and build tangible dreams that leave lasting impressions and memories that endure for years. What's your story? Storyland Studios is themed entertainment, destination design, production, and fabrication. Connect with the team at Storyland Studios to get started building your impossible dream today. Visit StorylandStudios.com or call now, 800-218-1932. That's 800-218-1932. Storyland Studios, your big ideas, best ally. We're talking with John Wood of the Sally Corporation, and we're talking about ride capacity and how you approach that as a company. We've had a variety of great ride concepts get ruined by ride capacity requests by operators. My feeling is our greatest, cha our greatest chance of success is in creating the appropriate ride vehicle for the show that makes it a successful blockbuster. First, 
because truly the conveyance is critical and capacity is secondary. Getting a great popular, popular ride that people want to do time and time again is where you make traditions and create uh, successes in this industry. Not now, it's all great when you when you do dial up the capacity, but sometimes it's just not the appropriate thing to do. And I've really had people insist on omni movers when it really would not. I've had people insist that they were going to have two thousand people an hour when they only had five hundred. Successful ride would be the one that's appropriate, engineered to provide fun and capacity, and neither one of them is weighed heavier than the other. Have you found that for a regional park, there's kind of a sweet spot in terms of what your rides, your yeah, attractions typically I I mean, even output? With our four passenger ride systems, we can get a good five to 600, actually you could get as many as 720 if you really wanted to push it every 18 seconds. Typically, they're going to get around 500 people an hour, and we find that in a dark ride in particular, a little line is good. Uh, and why is that? Because people want to join, you know, where there's popularity. It's uh, And there's an unknown factor often in a dark ride. What is this? What's inside the building? How are we going to... But there's a line? Hey, let's join the line. And uh, so it, a line has never been terrible. But I've also had customers tell me that it's the first ride that gets booked up line. It's the last one we can close at the end of the day. Uh, and that's because of popularity. And that's not, you know, and yes, capacity would alleviate that some. However, I don't think that's the goal. The goal is to have a ride that people want to ride on on the way out the park. Absolutely. Yeah. So would you say that I feel like there, there's always been a transition between the themed environment that's out in the the land, as it were, and then there's a themed environment that's in, in your ride or your attraction, and there's that transition time in the queue. Do you think that that's important when, when, with respect to soaking sort of in that environment? I think that that's a real missed opportunity in the case of most parks. And they're not entertaining people in the queue and not extending the story experience into the queue. And not just visually. We, we did it in Sesame Street and Port Aventura is the way we're going to do things in the future, too. Okay, how did you do that? What was important about that? We overhead put Grover, an animatronic, and then Grover's detective office was overhead, like the second floor, and all of this is video produced. But he goes into his office and he has dialogue about trying to find things that will help him find the clue. He puts on roller skates and loses his balance. He does all kinds of interesting and fun things that are so Sesame Street-like. But instead of it being a boring cue, it's now a 10-minute extension to the entertainment value of the experience. We've endeared the IP once again to the people who love it. You know, by using that IP, I've got a captive audience. It's not just stationary. So we like to create more show in that queue and like to find customers that want to do it too. Yeah. Do you find that there's a sweet spot in terms of how long the pre-show would be, the pre-show or the queue would be versus how long the ride is or, or is it completely based on, on the customer's it's need? Content. It's content. It's content and I think also it's variety. 
you know, 10 minute show would not be good if it wasn't entertaining for 10 minutes. And so you've got to be careful. It's not just a, a show duration. They do have other things they can do. They have other people they can talk to and they start making noise. If you, you know, you've got to have entertainment with them. That's just all. So there's no sweet spot, but the sweet spot is make sure it's fun. I love it. All right, John Wood, Sally Corporation, thanks so much. The Themed Attraction Podcast is hosted by Freddie Martin and Mel McGowan. We want you to know we don't take your listening for granted. It's very special to us that you tune in when we release episodes. Makes us feel great, but we hope it helps to build community. And one great way to build community is to leave us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or wherever you listen. That way, other people will find the show and we can grow our audience and share the stories of Themed Attraction all over the world. We want to thank our special guests, Bob Rogers of BRC Imagination Arts, Mike West from Universal Creative, and John Wood of Sally Dark Rides. Connect with Bob at brcweb.com, Mike via his company's LinkedIn, Innovative West, and John at sallydarkrides.com. Get access to more stories and interviews at themedattraction.com. Start your own profile, discuss the latest advancements, and interact with your fellow theme park designers around the world. Follow the action on Instagram and Twitter at themedattraction and join our active discussion group on LinkedIn. Connect with Mel by email via mel at storylandstudios.com or follow him on Twitter at Mel McGowan and Instagram at Visioneer. You can find me at freddymartin.net and follow my adventures at Skipper Freddy on Instagram and Twitter. Or email me at freddy at storylandstudios.com. Our theme music was composed by Rob Watson. Other music provided by The Lost Dogs. This episode was designed and produced by the one and only Dr. Barry Hill. Barry is the author of Imagineering an American Dreamscape, the genesis, evolution, and redemption of the regional theme park. This book tells the epic stories of regional theme parks and the strong-willed visionaries behind them. Some of the stories you may have heard, most you probably haven't, and it is a fascinating tale to tell. It's available to purchase on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or direct from the publisher at rivershorecreative.com. You know, Mel, speaking of ride capacity, Barry is a stickler for making sure every one of my boats is full of passengers every time I leave the dock. He won't let me throttle forward until I'm fully loaded. And I oblige him. It's five o'clock somewhere, am I right? Thanks for listening, folks. <laughs>